0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Search On Air podcast. My name is Jenny Bamu. I'm
1: your co-host, and I'm Jeff Young, the other co-host. We're trying something different. You know, regular listeners know that Jenny and I switch off. Uh, usually, we thought we'd start the, the top of the podcast together. Uh, well, Jenny, Jenny? What's what's going what's going on there, Jenny?
0: It's a hint about what we're going to talk about today.
1: Ah, yeah. I was just about to ask. Who'd you talk to for the podcast?
0: Do you know that reporter Anya Kamenetz? She's a lead reporter with NPR's education blog?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, I think she's written a couple books about education, right?
0: Exactly. Um, and we are talking about one of her newest books that's coming out called The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance dig- Digital Media and Real Life. I don't know if you've seen all the headlines, but people are really concerned about tech addiction these days.
1: Yeah, no, that is definitely, <laughs> that's the, the many think pieces are being written about that right now.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about her journalism life and her life as an academic after, before that.
1: Nice. Well, let's get to it.
0: Anya, welcome to the Ed On Air podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Jenny.
2: It's nice to connect with you.
0: Now I want to open by learning a little bit about you. I'm curious to hear about the perspective you bring to your education technology coverage. I was watching a video that you did from a TED Talk a while ago, back in 2010, and you were talking about transforming higher education institutions by getting conservative spaces, conservative institutions, to embrace technology. Here's a clip from your speech.
2: The reason that we have education is because we believe that there's something important that one generation has to transmit to the next. And so education has an inherently conservative uh, mode to it. And there's a very good reason that we preserve things for centuries and for generations. So what's the problem? Why am I here to say that there's a crisis in higher education? One reason is that there's always a crisis in higher education.
0: Now, in that speech, you go on to say that higher education is in a crisis, there are changes that need to happen, and one of those changes is embracing technology. Since that time, I'm curious to know, how has your view on education technology changed? Has it evolved with your reporting?
2: Well... I've been covering education in a lot of different ways since I was at the Village Voice right out of college, and the the one common thread that I can say is that I've always looked at it from a student perspective, and it took me a while to realize exactly how unusual that actually is, because I think a lot of the education coverage that we have, um, for better or for worse, it sort of addresses education as an institution in our society, like business or science. And because of that, it it sort of defaults to the perspective of teachers or administrators. Um, You know, in the technology world, perhaps there's now uh, a you know there's a whole kind of cadre of innovators and and entrepreneurs. Um, But the student perspective often gets lost. And I think what's um, the common thread in my coverage from writing you know about student debt with Generation Debt, writing about higher ed with DIYU. Uh, and now uh, with the art of screen time is that I'm interested in students' experiences. Uh, you know, we grow up in schools uh, as young children, and we, we want schools to help us achieve our goals, but the fact is that schools are founded and run by, um, not by students, by others, uh, with, other, with other goals and other ideas. So the tension that comes along with that, with, with students really wanting to prepare for their futures um, and, uh, and to create a future that they hope for, and then others who kind of construct school in a lot of different ways, that's what really gets me interested in. in. I'm interested in that tug-of-war and how new ideas enter into the uh, space uh, you know, w- with learners and um, you know, people that are teachers as well, and, and how they're kind of questing to use education as a way to transform society.
0: That's really interesting because I'm a former teacher. I taught fourth grade English, so I cover technology oftentimes, knowingly or unknowingly, with the lens of a teacher. So when you say you cover things from a student perspective, explain how that plays out for those who don't know what that means.
2: Um, well, uh, so for example, would be that uh, I was just talking to some fellow uh, reporters about a story about uh, student churn, so student mobility, how they're they're going from place to place and what effect that has. And the the way that the reporter is framing it, they were talking about, okay, what are the pressures on the school system? You know, What are the accountability pressures? Are, are schools being held responsible for the test scores of students that are coming and going? And I was like, wait, 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 wait. What I really want to hear about is what does it feel like to be the new kid in class? And And what does it mean if you have instability at home, but then you also have instability at school? And, and what is that student's feeling? And I feel like if you get to it, the story, it could be similar set of facts. But if you tell the story from that perspective, you just instantly have so much more emotional identification and um, I think just reality. Because the point is, we don't have schools for the sake of schools. They exist uh, to teach people. And um, whether that's K-12 or higher ed or pre-K, it's for the students. And we just, it's so easy to forget that.
0: Nice. So I'm going to take notes for my own personal coverage purposes (laughs) at this point. Now, let's dive a little bit into your book. You mentioned um, at an event recently that this book was inspired by a me search, kind of, I guess, meaning you can correct me if (laughs) I'm wrong, that you were trying to find answers for yourself and your family around positive screen usage. Is that correct?
2: That's exactly right. And uh, what was interesting to me was, again, this tension where as you and I both know, you know coverage of technology in the classroom has been really focused on the potential benefits and the promise of tech, mm-hmm. uh, even for very young children. But as a parent, you hear such a different story, and we're just kind of told as parents that we're supposed to keep the screens away from the kids and we're bad parents if we let them have it. So I really wanted to resolve that tension for myself and figure out, okay, are screens this incredible promise, or are they just dangerous and the schools have it all wrong? So not to
0: spoil the book for anyone, but you come to a pretty reasonable conclusion in your book and in a few articles you wrote after that, um, where you say that finding balance is a simple thing that people can do to manage screen time. Now, that's pretty obvious, I would say. Uh, you need to find balance for most things in life. What would you say are some answers that you encountered that were not so obvious or worked against conventional wisdom in some way?
2: Sure. So I think um, probably the biggest piece of news that parents might not welcome so much is that all the experts kind of agree that the best way to get benefits out of screen time is to share it with your kids. So the idea there is they call it joint engagement. Um, They call it, you know, they talk about avoiding solo use um, and being there with your kids, playing games alongside them, talking to them about the content of what they're watching, either before or after, um, is all really important to help. Kids transfer both the academic learning and the pro-social messages that can be in some high-quality media, um, as well as modeling. You know the active uses of media for creation, for discovery, for connection with others. Um, you know, uh, coding and using. You know, making art and making videos. These are all things that our kids need our guidance for, and um, that's something that's very tricky because the prevailing use of screens. I would say both in the classroom and at home is to occupy children alone um, and to have them kind of zone out and that's not what you get the best um effects from
0: I mean that's a really good point i'm thinking I'm thinking like most of my friends that have children that I've seen that's essentially what happens. Um, I'm wondering though, I'm thinking parents are probably wondering, is there a way to balance that request even? Um, Maybe the idea of can, can kids also benefit by working on their own, but sometimes with their parents?
2: Absolutely. I think that even the most, you know, strict um, experts would say that yes, you know, sometimes you need to do dishes or laundry. And that's kind of one of the reasons that we have media. Mm. Um, And also kids deserve to sometimes just be entertained. They don't have to have every moment be used for, you know, the most uh, perfect uh, purposes. But the point, again, is to have a balance. If you have those times, when you have an ongoing dialogue with your kid about what they're watching or what they're doing, Um, It opens the door and as kids get older, you know, they're having more and more of their own lives online, they're connecting with peers, using social media, and you want to have ideally that kind of principle or that tradition of talking about their experiences online with them, um, so that you'll be able to have a little bit of visibility into what they're doing without having to surveil them. Mm.
0: Now, I'm going to move on to another kind of topic that's very closely related to this, which is around addiction with the platforms. Now, several reporters and myself did an interview with Tristan Harris, the former Google employee gone rogue. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. He's actually the founder of the Center for Humane Technology. And we had a very interesting conversation. Um, He told me about his problem with the technology being used in classrooms. And one of the interesting things that he told me was even teachers who are pushing, who want to reach students where they are, are pushing them by, by reaching them on social media platforms and things like that. They're pushing them to addictive technology. I want to play a little clip from our conversation so we can be on the same page. And then I'll ask you a question.
1: Is Facebook designed to maximize your concentration and focus on the goals that you care about? Hmm. No. When you land there, they have an incentive. Let's say they have a bunch of notifications to show you. They'll want to drip out some now and then wait, hold some back and drip out more later. And the more frequent and interruptive it is, the better it is for them. Hmm.
0: Now, what does your research say about finding um, healthy ways for teachers to engage students who want to benefit from technology? Being concerned about things like possible addiction to applications like Facebook?
2: Well, this is a really, really tricky thing to navigate. Um, First of all, we have to acknowledge that, you know, some of the reasons for adoption of technology in the classroom is exactly the kind of engagement that um, Harris is, is decrying, right? So Mm -hmm. online platforms are built to engage and um, a lot of teachers want their students engaged. So they're kind of hoping that they can make a deal with the devil and use whether it's games or uh, social platforms, to get some of that um, that engagement and and to put it toward a good use, um, but the problem is that of course you know what we're seeing, uh, oftentimes it takes a lot of skill to do that. It takes a lot of skill to take a technology and to make it um, you know central to the goal of a lesson to the to the extent that a student is engaged and they're engaged toward what you want them to be engaged toward. Um, and so some of the successful strategies that I've seen for doing that um, may not be all that high tech. I mean, I see, uh, you know, students, for example, you see uses of Minecraft in the classroom. And um, one you know, of a lot of times what's successful with Minecraft in the classroom, it's not all that different from having students come together and do a group project to build a diorama or something out of paper and, and cardboard, but they're doing it in the online 3D space. Um, and that... You know that makes it inherently perhaps a little more exciting or interesting. Um, uh, but teachers have to be careful because what you often see as well, and what I see when I go out all over the country and, and talk to parents about their frustrations, is that you know kids get into middle school, the school issued devices are coming home, and the homework assignment is online. Maybe it's in Google Docs, but the kids are doing their homework with with twenty different tabs open, and they're messaging their friends, or listening to music, watching YouTube videos. And they've just immediately been plunged into this multitasking work environment that you know all of us are feeling as office workers. I know you have that, and I know I have it too. Um, that you're you're doing your work online, being on social media as part of your work potentially, and it's a struggle every day with distraction. But we're we're placing that burden on kids who are just learning the basics of time management being on task, maybe they're struggling with motivation for other reasons, and it's, it's a lot at once, and it's just a lot for students um, and their parents find, you know, that they're supposed to be scaffolding and supporting them, and they don't have all the best information about how to do that, and so the computer is often seen as being more in a position, bringing more problems with it than it does solutions.
0: I know that's right. Part of my job is to use social media. And sometimes I might get online looking for a tweet and I end up being there for an hour. Don't tell my boss. Um, but yeah, and it kind of makes you think, what are you asking students to do? Now I'm going to pivot a bit. Thinking about the other stories you've done, you did a really interesting piece recently titled Inside the Virtual School's Lobby, I Trust Parents. Talk to me a bit about that story. There's kind of weird and secretive stuff going on.
2: Ah, thank you so much for asking about this. I worked on this story for so long. (laughs) Um, So basically, uh, the virtual charter schools. If you're not aware, um, there's there's almost three hundred thousand students who attend schools that are all online. um, That are K twelve charter schools. They're free to the students and the families. They're paid for by taxpayers, and they're run by for-profit companies, the, the two largest are publicly traded, um, K-12 Inc., which is a standalone company, and Connections Academy, which is um, owned by Pearson Education. And the concern here is that as these schools have gotten a longer track record, they have really been doing poorly. Um, they have poor test scores, bad graduation rates. Um, and every, t- every study has found that just uh, across the board, these types of schools are not doing well by their students, mm. um, and, and you know, and there's a lot of different arguments over the reasons behind that. Is it part of the model? Is it a problem because the students that end up in these schools essentially they, they may not have been successful elsewhere? Um, but some researchers argue, no, even though they're they, you know, it doesn't matter the population because the student growth that the students exhibit in the school is so bad, it, it doesn't explain it. You know, just the, just because mm. they came in at a certain level. Um, that, be that as it may, what's been interesting is that state accountability systems have been mobilizing against these charter schools, these virtual charter schools, and um, there's been this pushback that sort of split the charter school movement. So, you know, very mainstream centrist, even right-of-center groups that are in favor of accountability for charter schools, they or pro-reform, pro-charter, have kind of ended up saying, well, we like charter schools, but we don't want these schools to be considered charter schools because they're so different and their performance is so much worse in so many ways. And so that set up this huge debate. Um, And because of the, you know, these schools, unlike public schools and unlike most charter schools, they're not backed by nonprofits. They're not backed by um, state governments. They're backed by um, profit-making corporations. And these corporations have engaged in kind of a vast array of political lobbying uh, to try to keep, you know, keep themselves in business, even though the state accountability systems would have them, you know, closed or sanctioned.
0: And what I read in your piece was that the crux of their lobbying focuses on parents. They use the hashtag, I trust parents, kind of juxtaposing decisions that parents make about education um, with the accountability system in place. Can you, unpack that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. So it's pretty clear, right, um, that if you you can't make a case for your school based on the student's performance, based on test scores, um, based on a learning advantage, all you have left is to say, these schools should exist because parents want them. Um, and so that's basically what they're saying. They're saying, I don't care about, you know, they have parents out there or people that, you know, are are speaking as parents saying, you know, I don't care about test scores, my kid just needs this kind of school. And oftentimes, they have very compelling stories, because the kids that end up using online schools, you know, they may be chronically ill, they may have a disability, or they may be severely bullied at school, and they're, you know, they need to stay home for their own safety. Um, So parents are very impassioned in saying, you know, if we didn't have this K-12 virtual school, my kid wouldn't be able to have any studies at all, or I'd be homeschooling, I wouldn't have the resources to do it without this. Um, and that's very compelling, you know. Um, it's it's an interesting take when you think about okay, um, you know, the types of statements that, for example, Secretary DeVos has made about her position on accountability and and you know, parent choice. If we're not going to impose test-based accountability or other quality measures for um, for charter schools in general or for school choice or private schools or for-profit private schools, you know, without that, it's very hard to, to think about what is the public role in education um, if it's not that. You know, if it's not operating schools, you know, themselves, public schools, or if it's not uh, overseeing schools that children are going to, um, then, then what exactly is the government supposed to do other than just Say, hey, everybody can go do whatever they want, and that's fine because that's parent choice.
0: Hmm. And as someone, your, I know you, your book, the test has kind of, you know, taken test <laughs> for it in itself and our accountability system to task a little bit. Um, and so, as someone who's kind of actually actively really thought about accountability measures and what that should or can look like, um, what are your thoughts about what's happening here? What does this mean? What direction does this mean we're kind of going into?
2: It's such an interesting question, right? Because it's like you, you hear, it's sort of like arguments converging from the right and the left for lack of a better term. I mean, I know it doesn't really map onto politics in that way, but yes, I mean, you know, I'd be the first person to point out that standardized tests, the kinds of cheap and low quality standardized tests that have been adopted for accountability in States across the country are not the most fine grained measures or the most relevant measures of student performance. Um, And, and, you know, Honestly, the new federal education law kind of acknowledges that the Every Student Succeeds Act, because it does ask states to adopt other measures, things like attendance and behavior, and even school climate surveys, to try to and not to mention graduation rates, which have their own issues. uh, But just multiple data points to try to get a better sense of what exactly is going on in schools. And you know, and parent opinion and parent choice does matter. You know, you want parents to have agency. But the the problem or the issue here is that um, you know people like Secretary DeVos, who's been at, you know, who has owned stock or family's own stock in K-12 Inc., kind of taking that group of arguments to to say that, well, a a private company should be allowed to operate schools that fail every bar that's been set for every other school. um, And they should be allowed to stay in business and the rules should be changed if necessary um, in order to keep them going because, well, because students want them. And the reason students want them is because parents have chosen them. Um, That doesn't seem to me to be a rigorous argument. I mean, I think people who are fair minded, who want there to be high quality options for all students, um, kind of seek to say, well, we don't have the perfect insight into what makes a good school or a high quality school, but we have these measures, and we want to give schools a chance to improve. Um, You know, and and. I think that there's it, it's an open debate, but it's a very strong debate and and a very highly motivated group of people um, maybe shouldn't be allowed to come in and say we should get rid of these or we should have these kinds of schools, um, you know, regardless of what every single measure in place says.
0: Well, Anya, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. And before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, what should we be looking forward to from you in the future?
2: Sure. So I'm continuing to be in great conversation with um, with parents and with educators and innovators about what makes good screen time and what makes good technology in the classroom mm-hmm. and relating that to my interest in social and emotional learning, especially, um, in diversity and other kinds of, um, you know, ways that classrooms can become more fully human. Cause I think what most kind of interests me is the idea that as education evolves, you know, the is evolving, education has to evolve too. Um, and some of that's going to be through technology and some of that's going to be outside of technology.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the Ed Surge on our podcast, Anya. Thanks, Jenny. So for those of you who stuck around to the very end, I got something a little funny for you. So this totally happened while Jeff and I were recording our introduction. Caught him in the
1: act. Okay, hold on one second. Okay. Here, just use my phone for now, okay? I'll be down in a couple of minutes.
0: Look at you, screen time parent. We
1: got, yeah, there's a six-year-old (laughs) here in my home office watching a phone.
0: (laughs) Jeff, you're doing it anyway.
1: Oh, he corrected me. He's playing a video game.
0: Oh, well, there you go. Correction. (laughs) Correction. I hope it's one of those educational
1: games. (laughs) Is it an educational game, buddy? What does that mean? (laughs) I love him. (laughs) He knows what's up.
0: This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jenny Bamu, and you can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsurge.com. You can also subscribe to us on your iPhone podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education.